that you're ready. Are you ready? Say I'm ready if you're ready. All right, so get out your phones because I think tonight the odds of actually taking notes are probably, it's probably not as good as if you uh, take out your phones and take pictures of things. I'm going to give you what is generally a three-day seminar on the validity of the authority of Scripture, and I'm going to do it in the next 30 minutes. How many of you guys believe in miracles? It's in the Bible. You can try this, all right? So here we go. So last week we talked very briefly about the parable of the seed and the sower, Matthew chapter 13, verse 3, and then verse 18, talking about the seed that was sown along the path. It was trampled down. It was hardened. It wasn't fertile in the sense that the seed couldn't get into it, so the birds came and stole it. And we talked about the condition of the heart. Um, this week, though, we need to come back to that same parable because that is not the totality of the parable. The parable talks about the seed that was sown along the path, but then it moves on to another dynamic. And tonight we're going to be talking about not just the, the thought that we are um, we have to have plowed and tilled ground, ground that's been softened, ground that, that has a heart that is soft for the, for the Word of God, but we also have to have a, a, an intellect. We also have to have a mind. How many of you guys realize our hearts are good things? How many of you guys like feelings? I watch movies for feelings. I watch documentaries for facts. I, I like them both. But to, today what we have to do is focus not just on our hearts, but also our heads. So if you don't engage more than just your heart, you're going to fail just as if your heart's not good. Matthew chapter 13, verse 5. You ready to get in the Word? Say yes. Here we go. Some of the seed fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they were withered because they had no root. Now, um, the disciples, as we said last week, they have no idea what he's talking about. It's true. I see it, but I don't know how to apply it. So he comes back in verse 20, and he says this. He explains it. The seed that's falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root. Everybody say root. Deeper into the soil. They last only a short time when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Now, there's a difference between receiving Jesus with our heart and receiving Jesus with our head. I know sometimes we downplay the head, like don't use your intellect, just use your heart. And, and, I, and I might get that in the sense of conversion. We try to talk ourselves out of faith because we wonder about these questions. And, and with, with uh, you know, our, our mouth we confess, with our heart we believe, the heart certainly is engaged. But what Jesus is talking about here in this parable is if we just have our heart, like I, I love God, but I don't know who he is. I, I love that I'm in covenant, but I don't know what the details of the covenant are. We, we are warned, and we are admonished, and we are, uh, you know, prepped and primed for Scripture. The Bible talks a lot about the Bible, and what the Bible says about the Bible is that it's the Word of God, it's true, and you better know it. You are defenseless on a battlefield with only defensive armament. The Word of God is the sword, the, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith. These are good things, but eventually a dart's going to get through. And if you don't have an offensive weapon to counter the attack, you're in trouble. And this is exactly what happened to me. In 1982, 83, I went to a rock concert. It was a Christian rock concert. I gave my heart, everybody say heart, to Jesus. Radically transformed my life. I, I was a Friday night, Saturday night. I didn't go to church on Sunday because I didn't know anybody that really went to a church. I didn't know of any churches, never been in a church. But on Monday, I go to the science class. They called it Scans, and Karen Waltz, my favorite teacher, was there, and I said, I just had this compelling, like, I went to this concert. I met, I met my creator. I gave my life to God. Like, I, I'm never going back to the booze and the alcohol and the, the drugs and the dope. I'm just, I, I, I walked into a concert, a hopeless dope fiend. I walked out a dopeless hope fiend, and I just got to tell somebody about it. Would you mind leaving the classroom so I can tell people about God? So that's how real my conversion was. She said, Jim, I'll get fired. I said, Mrs. Waltz, you hate your job. I'm doing you a favor. 
This is good. And she left the room, and I stood up, and I told them what I knew of God. It took about five seconds. I said, I went to this concert. I met somebody. They got all excited because they thought it was a girl. And then I started saying things like he, and then they got really confused. And then I said Jesus, and they went, oh. And one guy's like, ah, oh, we can shut up, sit down. And little did I know, but Tyrone Hook, I guess with a name like Tyrone Hook, you, you're not a ballet dancer. He was a football player. He didn't play on the offensive line. Tyrone was the offensive line. He was a white dude with an afro that weighed 300 and some pounds back when nobody weighed 300 and some pounds. And when they said, Wiegand, shut up, sit down, you're being an idiot, Tyrone said, hey, let him talk. And I thought, you know, I could give an altar call. I could take an offering. I, I, could, <laughs> I could, like, say, get on the bus, Tyrone, with Jason. So my head was engaged. I was fully born again. How many of you guys see that? I was sharing what I knew. Now, fast forward a year later, I joined the United States Army. I go through training. How many of you guys know that some feelings go away in time? New feelings come in their place. I was this guy. I, I relate to the seed that, that falls on rocky ground. It springs up. I receive the word with joy, but there wasn't a depth to my understanding. And when my, when my head could not tell my heart to continue to believe, I stopped believing. I, I went into all the things that, I, that Jesus brought me out of, and it wasn't until I came back to Christ, and those who brought me back to Christ said, you need to be in Sunday school. You're going to be teaching next week. Here's the teacher's manual. Go to the Christian bookstore. Buy the Zondervan stuff, the, the, the navigator things for military people on the book of James, and get in the Word. Bible studies, Bible trivia, Bible animal crackers. You know what I mean? Like we had little mints called pills. I mean, they were, they, like everybody was talking about the Bible. And from there, I went to Master's Commission, or what we call it, FCMA or FCA here, and I was, I was, you know, part of that was memorizing 10 scriptures a week for 52 weeks, 520 scriptures at one time sitting down, and all I got was John 3.16, and I had to know the rest of the verse. Being in the Word for an hour a day, memorizing it for an hour a day, praying for an hour a day, that was how I was discipled. That's how the rocks got out of my dirt. So what I'm here to tell you is this, not that you need three hours every day, you're never going to make it, but I am here to tell you this. If your heart is engaged and your Christianity is based on feelings, there will come a time where a testing, where a trial, where a persecution, where trouble comes, and the feelings you have will not be the feelings you've known of God. They'll be the feelings of trouble, persecution, trials. This makes sense? So what we feel is important, true or false. I mean, it's, it's a big deal. What we know to be true, though, is even more important than what we feel. Think of it this way. Our hearts need our heads to continue to believe even if our feelings change because of circumstances. I, that's a picture taker. I'm just going to say it again. Our hearts need our heads. Our hearts need our heads to continue to believe even if our feelings change because of circumstances. Think of this. Those who are led by their feelings are often lost regardless of truth. But those who are led by truth are never lost regardless of feelings. I don't believe that Paul and Silas in a Philippian jail having been beaten from the backs of the heads of the soles of their feet, slated for execution, sitting in the filth of the last dozen prisoners that were there, and they haven't washed it out because they have no understanding of the microscopic world. Why they chose to praise God at midnight does not speak of their feelings. It speaks of their decision-making. Their head knew, and their body is raging in pain. Their soul feels like we did something right, and where is God? But they just their head told their heart, keep believing, keep believing, keep believing. Something deeper than our feelings. They have to be engaged if we're to pass the test of our life. So Jesus taught that the Word of God is the foundation. Everybody say foundation. The foundation of what we build our lives on. Think of it this way. 
Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Here comes Jesus. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, he's like a wise guy, like oh, a wise guy, like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, here's what happens. The rain came down as it always does. The streams arose because that's what happens in the spring. That's what happens in the fall. That's what happens. And the winds blew and beat against that house because that's the world we live in. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock, on what Jesus said and what they were doing with that. Verse 27, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built this house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew, the same circumstances, and they beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. Now today, I want to talk to you a few reasons, take a three-day seminar, put it into a short amount of time, but a few reasons why I personally believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Um, I do want to say this at the very beginning. I am not here to convince every skeptic and answer every question. But I think what my assignment could be tonight is very simply put, is to help you understand things that have no other explanation besides the divinity of this document. There are things that the Bible has that nothing else in all of written human uh, epilogues has, not even close. There is nothing close to this in what it says, how it says it, the effect of it for those who believe it. So let's talk about that tonight. So again, no other book like it in human history. And here we go. It's made of 66 books written by 40 different authors that spoke three separate languages, written over 1,500 years, and it's written by shepherds and kings and fishermen and tax collectors and zealots and wealthy people, fabulously wealthy people and unbelievably poor people that had babies and feed troughs. And all of them speaking about all these social issues like marriage, politics, uh, the government, uh, how, how to manage health, wealth, uh, poverty, all these. How many of us know that if we ask a king about wealth, he'll give you one answer. You ask someone living on the street about wealth, they'll give you another. How many of us know if we take a king from 1,500 years who talks about it, and then 50, 100 years later, another king talks, they probably won't even say the same thing because everything changed. How many of us know our culture has changed so drastically in the last six months? The answers to common questions we would ask today are completely different than our answers would have been six months ago. That's how quickly life changes. So over the course of 15 centuries, asking a huge variety of people about topics about God, about the afterlife, about the heavens, the earth, science, um, philosophy, psychiatry, astrophysics, and for all of these answers to be answered without contradiction, I think gives us some evidence that it's, it's a divine book. I, if, if not, I defy you to go today and ask major questions on social media about truth. Who is God? What, what happens after we die? What are, what's, the, what's the right um, family unit? What, what are the ordinances on health? Just ask your average friends, and then you be the editor of people that probably are a lot like you answering those same questions, and you couldn't edit that thing down. You would say, some say this, a certain percentage say that. You would say, some say those, a certain percentage say these. In other words, to have that sort of uniformity, that sort of, that sort of beautiful harm, harmony between all those people through all those centuries and all those cultures and all those languages speaks of a divine and singular author. Um, this is an interesting graphic. I just came across it today. Isn't that pretty? <clears throat> this is a timeline from Genesis through the last, so the, the first book written, which is probably Job, all the way through the last book that was written, which is probably Second Timothy. And if you look at all, it may be the book of Revelation. If you look at all of that, these lines that go in between are the interactions of Scripture with Scripture. So it was prophesied about someday, or it happened 
back again, or someone here referred to what had already been said. That's a timeline of the Bible, and this is the interconnectivity. Can you guys see that the Bible talks about the Bible a lot? It prophesies about the future. It refers to what's going to happen or what has happened. It affirms and confirms. So this, this is not like God's really big. This is everybody. These, those are fishermen. Those are kings. Those are shepherds. Those are tax collectors and zealots, people who hated the state and those who work for the state, all together looking at the same topics and arriving at the same conclusions. So I believe the Bible. And, and tonight, uh, I keep saying that, today, I, I want us to just look at its beautiful uniqueness. So um, let's talk about the abundance of evidence that exists for the Bible's existence at all. I've heard people say, well, you know, it's, it was a long time ago. How do we know that we actually have, you know, enough pieces of it to be confident about our modern, you know, English version that we have on our hands? Did you know that, that today we have, we found already 66,000 manuscripts, parchments, portions and scrolls that, that make up our Old and New Testament. 66,000 non-contradicting. There are certain typos that when it was done here, it went out there, but it didn't change the content. It didn't change any doctrine. Just somebody misspelled a word and it went on and on and on. It was copied again and again and again. Scribes are still human beings, but we have 66,000. Now, other manuscripts of, of famous books to this day that were from that day would be like Homer's The Iliad. As a matter of fact, the number two number of transcripts that have survived to modern times is Homer's Iliad. How many of you have ever heard of Homer's The Iliad? It's one of the classic books of, of antiquity, uh, a contemporary to Scripture. So 66,000 manuscripts. How many do you think Homer's Iliad? And nobody questions whether or not Homer wrote it. Nobody questions whether it was a, you know, what kind of story it was. There's no debate about it whatsoever. How many manuscripts do you think survived to today? We have portions or in, in its total, 1,800 compared to 66,000 that we found so far. We have entire scrolls like the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in the Qumran Caves, kind of in the Dead Sea area that were just old, worn-out scrolls. They put in clay jars. They sealed them. They put them in a cave in a desert environment. In the 40s, some shepherd's looking for a sheep. He throws a rock into, into a cave, kind of hoping that it says, bah! but instead of going, bah, he hears crash. He's like, what's going on? And he found all these things of uh, an Essene community that lived out there, and they had these old, what we call the Old, the old Testament today, these scrolls, and they kind of retired them, but we've been able to unravel them, and, and what we find from that beautiful discovery is exactly what we already had, each manuscript confirming the other. Are you guys here today? Think of it this way, too. Let's look at archaeology, because if it is a book of theories and myths, and what I've been, you know, when I was taught atheism, it was what was known as a Hebrew fairy tale. This, none of this is true. There wasn't a literal this or a literal that. I, there couldn't be, because science has disproven. Archaeology does not validate. So let's get into some of these things. Um, if you were to ask an archaeologist, what is the most reliable treasure map ever written by men, they would say the Bible. It is without question. I'm going to say this. Now, I'm going to say it, but then I'm going to bring a lot of really smart people here to say it in just a moment. To this date, there's not a single contradiction of archaeology found in Scripture. When it says there was a person and there was a place and it happened at this time, thus far, without a single exception, every person, every place, at every time, that, you know, now there's some we haven't found yet, but no one has found something that has contradicted what Scripture says. Listen to these noted archaeologists. Um, this is a guy, Dr. Clifford Wilson. With a name like Clifford Wilson, you better be smart because you're going to get beat up and you need something else to do, right? He says this, I know of no finding in archaeology that's, that's properly confirmed, which is in opposition to the Scriptures. The Bible is the most accurate 
history textbook the world has ever seen. Jack Cottrell said this, through the wealth of data uncovered by historical and archaeological research, we were able to measure the Bible's historical accuracy. In every case where it claims, where its claims can be uh, thus tested, the Bible proves to be accurate and reliable. Dr. Joseph Free says this, archaeology has confirmed countless passages which have been rejected by critics as unhistorical or contradictory to known facts. Yet, archaeological discoveries have shown that these critical charges are wrong and that the Bible is trustworthy in the very statements which have been set aside as untrustworthy. We do not know of any case where the Bible has been proved wrong. I love this last one. Uh, Miller Burles from uh, Yale University says this, On the whole, archaeological work has unquestionably strengthened confidence in the reliability of the scriptural record. More than one archaeologist has found his respect for the Bible increased by the experience of excavation in Palestine. Archaeology has, in many cases, refuted the views of modern critics. Archaeology, in many cases, has refuted the views of modern critics. It has shown in a number of instances that these views rest on false assumptions and unreal artificial schemes or historical development. This is a real contribution and, uh, and not to be minimized. Miller Burroughs, professor of archaeology at Yale University. How many know Yale University is not a Christian institution? He's got no skin in the game. This guy was the head of the Australian uh, archaeological development. Like, these are not believe, These are not Christians saying, the Bible's true, the Bible's true. These are archaeologists saying, when we look for a city, we say, where does the Bible say it's going to be? If it's 20 stadia east of the Jordan River, north of Gilgag, they start digging right there. And when they do, without exception, they find the cities that the Bible said existed. They find the people. Now, if we can compare this to some other... Uh, religious texts, such as, let's just take the Book of Mormon. I'm not here to disrespect anybody's beliefs, but the Book of Mormon talks about ancient civilizations that existed in the North American continent. Uh, it talks about people that live on the moon and live to be about 300 years old and dress like Quakers. It talks about all kinds of things. Listen, when we talk about these, these religious books that, that talk about archaeology, um, whether it's the Quran, whether it's the, the Book of Mormon, whether it's Rutherford, whether it's Watchtower Society, people that look at history through a slant see it wrong. The Bible wasn't a biased uh, you know, observation of life. It just recorded what happened. When archaeologists look at the Bible, what they see is a treasure map. How many of you guys want to know more about science? Um, I hear, why, why do why does Christians and science have such a difficulty? I, I would just say this. I don't have any difficulties with science. I enjoy, I've read The Origin of Species. I've uh, studied uh, Darwin to Dawkins, I've, uh, who's a noted scientific atheist in Great Britain. Uh, I, came, I came at Christianity. I met Jesus, and, I, and I, my heart was changed. But then my head had to figure out through Scripture what reality was. But I never lost that, that desire for research. I've enjoyed this message. I've enjoyed refreshing my memory. I've enjoyed researching. I learned a bunch of new stuff I didn't know about the validity of Scripture. And so science is one of those things where how could an ancient people know things about germs, about viruses, about what is clean, what is unclean, what's healthy to eat, what's not healthy to eat? How could they possibly know and then know what to do with it when it takes centuries later, sometimes millennia later, before the rest of science catches on? So I believe that truth is truth, whether it's biblical truth or scientific truth. I'm not here. Science is all bad. It's not all bad. I'm grateful for science. I'm, I'm grateful that someone figured out how to deaden pain. 
I'm great that someone figured out how to isolate certain tumors and how to, how to I, I am grateful for medicine. I am grateful for science. I am grateful. But here's the one thing. If we're going to look at an issue, whether we're a Christian looking at it biblically or a scientist looking at it, you know, uh, scientifically, we both have to be sincere in our efforts. We don't have to find stuff to make the other one look stupid. And I think that's where we run into trouble is if we're not careful, a, science, a scientist can sometimes replace God with science, and that's where we're going to have an issue. But I think also a Christian can, can say science isn't true because it doesn't match my understanding of God. I think it's better if we just open our minds and listen. Come on, say amen. Because I think both sides have a lot to say, but understanding, I believe the Bible is true, and uh, I've seen fabulous breakthroughs in, in medicine and neuroplasticity and, and uh, neurology that come from, and, and we're going to find out in a moment, in oceanography, uh, in physics that came from the Bible. So let's take a look at this. Did you know that Isaiah chapter 40, verse 20, talks about the, the earth being round? And, and how many of you guys know that the flat earth, some of you guys still believe it. It's just the weirdest thing ever. But, but literally, the, there's not a flat earth. I've seen the pictures. It's okay. I, I, I've been on the sea. I used to be a deep sea. I used to work a deep sea fishing boat. You can tell when ships go over the horizon, they disappear. Like, like they, don't, they don't just keep going. They don't get smaller. You miss the deck, and then you miss the, and then the sails, and like they're going over the horizon. Um, anyway, it's just ridiculous. But, but when this was done, you know what the belief system was? And I don't mean to make fun of science. You can make fun of Christianity. I'm not making fun of science, because I, I think Jesus can take it. He can stand up to all scrutiny. But this is not me mocking science. But at the time... The, the predominant scientific theory is that the earth was flat, which is, but it was on top of three giant elephants that was on the back of one giant tortoise. And that's how the heavens moved, is the tortoise slowly moved and the three elephants held up the flat earth. And, you know, how do you know that? Well, we're scientists. It's like, how do, listen, if the Bible says the earth is round, how many of you guys remember Bugs Bunny? Then the earth, she's around. You know what I mean? So Columbus comes along, you know, millennia later, and says, hey, I think the earth is round. I, I mean, we've got, uh, not Spartacus, Copernicus, what was his name? The guy that understood the stars. But he, he saw, he saw the, the earth casting a shadow in an eclipse on the moon and saw that it was semicircular. You go, hey, the earth is round. Columbus proved it by going around it. He wasn't the first one, but whatever, right? Job chapter 26, verse 7 says that the world floats in space, that the earth is hung on nothing, that God hung the earth on nothing. Leviticus chapter 15, verse 13 says that if you're engaged in something that's unclean, whether it's uh, something comes out of our bodies or it's a dead animal or uh, a dead body, so, you know, something that's unclean, it doesn't say get a basin of water and wash your hands, get a basin of water and wash your clothes. It's very clear to say be in moving water. How many of you guys know that medicine, this goes back to well, the mid-1850s, right? We've got a guy named Ignis Simmelweis who is observing that doctors who are delivering babies are actually causing more deaths than midwives, less trained people that are delivering babies. And he goes, well, how can that be? How can a more trained, peop a more trained doctor have more infections in the mothers and, and more resulting deaths of both the mother and the infant than lesser trained midwives? It doesn't make sense. He concluded something without knowing that there were germs before the microscopic age was discovered. But he said, I think what's happening is the doctors are performing autopsies in medical school, not washing their hands in moving water, but going over to bodies having just kind of wiped their hands down 
washed in a basin that the last guy washed his hands in. They got the big pieces off, but the germs were still there. When they delivered the babies, the, the fever that would come because of the infection of the dead person getting into the living person. So Ignis Semmelweis observes this and says, listen, I think we even had all the midwives deliver the babies. Everybody should wash their hands, not in a basin, but in moving water like the Bible says. Now, how many of you guys know that that was declared in law like, uh, what, 1,850 years Prior to that, now how would Moses know that that's the way to sanitize something unclean is in moving water? You hear what I'm saying? There's scientific insights. Uh, Leviticus says that life is in the blood. Now you got to go forward a long ways before science goes, you know where life is? Where? In the blood. I've heard that somewhere before. Psalms 8.8 talks about uh, the paths in the sea and an oceanographer by the name of Mark I remember there was a day where they knew where the winds blew, but they didn't know that there was currents. I mean, knows what the, what the EAC is because you saw Finding Nemo, the East Australian current, right? There's currents that go all over the globe. They, they, it fertilizes, it brings food, um, the, 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 the spontaneous migration of species from one place to another at just at the right time. But because Mars saw in the Bible there were paths in the sea, he set out to the sea to see if he could discover the paths. And he's the one that found the currents that go around the globe. He used the Bible's insight to scientifically discover what was formerly unknown, just like Ignis Semmelweis, just like others. Look at this. This is interesting. Job chapter 38, verse 35, says that, you know, who, who sends the lightning and gives a report? That the Job observed that light can be sent and can manifest itself as speech. If you get out your phones right now that are moved by radio waves and cellular towers and all that stuff, long before, long before we discovered those things, God talked about it. This one's a lot of fun. Uh, Genesis 2, verse 1, the first law, there's three laws of thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics is that it's a closed system. You cannot create or dissolve energy. You can can light that on fire, but that becomes light. It becomes heat. It becomes exhaust. So energy is energy. You cannot add to, create. That's why there's no such thing as a perpetual motion machine, a machine that with its own energy creates its own energy, it, it doesn't exist because it, it's a closed system. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 says, and then God finished all that he created. This, the first mention of the first law of, of thermodynamics is actually in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. This one's a lot of fun. Genesis, you guys doing okay? Get this one. Genesis chapter 6, verse 15. They're talking about Noah's Ark. Now, the, the, the ship... The ark that Noah was uh, told to build was one and a half million cubic feet. This room's 10,000. So somebody do the math. Is that 1,500 of these? Massive floor space. And, and of course, nothing like that had ever been built. Why would you ever build something like that? But here, here's the fascinating part is mathematically, the dimensions of that is that <clears throat> the length was six times the width and 10 times the height. And did you know that when they build ships today, that's the formula they use for shipbuilding today? They've never found a better, a better example, a better geometry. The only time they change it is when there's propulsion involved. So like a tanker, for example, we can have a much longer than six times. It can be 16 times with, with the width and the height. The width and the height remain the same. But the reason they can do that is because the propulsion that's behind it. But the, all, the arc was not propelled. It is the perfect dimensions of a ship of any size. <clears throat> and it happened a long, long time ago. And how? How could anybody design that in such a way that it was used, what is it, thousands of years later now? And that's still the mathematical formula for building a cargo ship today. The, there was a, there was a uh, South Korean, um, oh, they build ships for the shipping industry, but, it, but it's, the, it's, 
It's like the cruise industry. And they did a study. What's the most effective use of space, the width to length, the height proportions? They discovered that there is not a better mathematical formula of geometry than what the Bible provided all the way back in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 15. You guys doing good? Look at this. This is quarantining. Leviticus chapter 13 and verse 46 talks about if somebody's unclean, if they find leprosy on you, you're to go outside the camp, get away from everybody else. Now, they don't know that it's contagious. They don't know there's viruses. They don't know there's bacteria. They don't even know it's, it's leprosy. It doesn't even have that name. It's just sores and wounds. But the law in Leviticus 13 says if someone is found to be unclean with these sort of wounds or discharges, they're to go away from everybody else. And if they heal outside the camp, they can come back in, show themselves to the priests. It's gone now, and they're welcome to go home at that point. But yes, no, there was, was it like uh, 70 million people in Europe died of the Black Plague? 70 million. You know why? Because they didn't do what was talked about 2,000 years prior on 2,000, 3,000 years prior to that. If someone's sick, take them outside the town. Get them out there. They got, you can care for them out there. Here's a loaf of bread. You know what I mean? But don't touch them. And they understood to a much greater extent, even though it's the dark ages, there was something going on in an unseen world that was causing it. Um, are you guys still doing good? All right. <clears throat> so that's science. Archaeology, science, it's unique formation. Let's take another look here and talk about prophecy. I just realized my time's expired, so here we go. How many guys to give me about a good 10 minutes? Well, you, if you, if you got to go, that's cool. I will point you out. Okay. Uh, prophecy. What, what if there was a book that accurately predicted future events that was right 100% of the time? Would that be of any interest to you at all? It would be to me as well. In the life of Jesus, there's over 300 prophecies about his life, death, and resurrection, about another 50 prophecies that deal with the, his second coming. The first 300 and some prophecies were all completely fulfilled at his life, death, and resurrection. Do you know what the odds are of a singular life having all of those coincidences happen by random chance? It, it is so astronomically, unbelievably huge, and that's by using a, a one in one, a one in two, a one in ten, a one in a hundred, a one in a thousand. But some of these things that are predicted have have like really no mathematical score. Things like being born of a virgin. It's it's kind of a rarity. Would you agree? Something like being raised from the dead. Do you think that would kind of soil the mathematical problem? You say, he's going to have a, a, a mole on his left cheek. Well, now you've got a chance of one in a thousand, one in a hundred. He, he's going to have brown eyes. Well, now you've got a, you know, one in five plus one in a hundred. So you've got a, you know, one in whatever that would be. And he, he's going to be born in this town. Well, now you've got to have a guy in that town with a mole on his cheek with brown eyes. It's getting hard. Well, now he's got to, you know, ride in on a donkey colt. Now he's got to be crucified, but none of his bones be broken. Now he's got to be in the prime of his life. Now he's got to be wounded for transgressions, bruised for iniquities. There's going to be a crown of thorns. They're going to gamble for his clothing, and he's going to rise from the dead. Anybody kind of getting the thought that this is not just going to happen by random chance? 300 separate prophecies about one life. And Jesus fulfilled all of them, but the ones that are yet to be fulfilled at his second coming. The fall of major cities. Remember, archaeology is bearing out the factual stories of biblical prophecies about these places, places like Tyre. Um, Tyre was a, a, a fabulous city. It actually had an island sanctuary that was, I think, a mile out into the Mediterranean. 
So if you did attack and, and successfully sack the city of Tyre, they, they would just kind of move out to their, and, and you couldn't attack. You had to have a navy. This is before the Marines and, you know, duck boats and landing craft and all that kind of stuff. You just didn't do it. And there wasn't like battleships that would blow artillery. You had to land somewhere, and they were waiting for you, and you died as you got off your boat. Think Normandy. Think Omaha Beach, uh, but, but with bows and arrows and spears. So it moved so slowly and was so obvious that it was suicide to get off your boat. So what happened was there was a prophecy against the city of Tyre. It said, if you continue to do this, God's going to judge you. And it, it made very specific claims. It said that the land would be scraped like, 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 a, uh, like a cake. Like it would be flattened. 300 years later, after that prophecy, the city of Tyre had not repented, and Alexander the Great showed up. They all retreated to their city out on the island, and he scraped the city flat, trees, rocks, high places, and he built a causeway. It's called Alexander's Causeway. It exists today out to the island and conquered the island and judged with horrible judgment the people of the city of Tyre, just as the Bible had foretold. Babylon. Do you understand? Babylon had a wall, guys. You think of the walls of Jericho. The, the walls of Babylon were 75 feet wide. Now get this. 300 feet tall. That's a 30-foot ceiling. Ten times, and 75 feet would be about from here to that back wall. So that is how it's ten times higher and as wide as from here to the back wall. It had a river flowing underneath it so that, it, so that if they were besieged, they had running water, agriculture, animal reproduction. They were self-contained. Babylon had the hanging gardens, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. When you say it's going to fall in a day because of an invading army if you don't repent, everyone would laugh. If you guys saying the United States is going to fall in a day because of an invading army, they're the number one military in the world. We'd, we'd know they were coming. But this is what the king of Persia did. Get this. He ended up, he dammed up one side of the river. It slowly went dry overnight, and they attacked from both sides where the river used to run through the town. They came up into the city. Not only were they sleeping, they were drunk, just as the Bible said they would be. And they would sleep in a way that they would never awake again, just as the Bible predicted. And archaeologists tell us, you never guess how they invaded Babylon. It's like exactly the way the Bible foretold. Jerusalem. And I, boy, we don't have a lot of time for this, but there were three separate times that Jerusalem was prophesied would be destroyed. They would go into captivity, and they did. The first one was, was prophesied in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. It took place in Exodus chapter 12. Verses 40 and 41, where it's prophesied the people that go into this, my people, they're going to be obstinate, they're going to be stiff-necked, and I'm going to put them in time out for 430 years. And the Bible says this, I love it, in Exodus 12, 40, 41, it says, to the selfsame day, 340 years later, to the day God restored his people back to the land. The second captivity said was 70 years, Jeremiah 25, 11. The Bible says to the selfsame day, when the 70 years were fulfilled, Israel came back to the land. The last one is quite a mathematical problem. I'll give you the Reader's Digest version of it. And you can look it up. There's the scriptures. But Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 3 through 7, speaks about a judgment that would come upon Israel. You've been conquered by your own sins, and soon you'll be conquered by a foreign king. You'll be exiled, scattered all over the place. There's going to be a season, 70 years, 430 years, and there's going to be remnants of this. And if you repent, I'll let you come back in the land. That time came and went, 5%. They were raised in Babylon for generations, when they came, the time to be released back, believe it or not, the king who didn't know those prophecies let them return. When they came back, though, only 5% came back, and the rest did not. Those who did came back did not repent of the sins of their forefathers. They lived serving the gods of Babylon. So in the book of Leviticus chapter 27, about eight different times in that chapter, it talks about if you do not repent, I will multiply upon you seven times the punishment. So we're going to do some math, which I don't have time to get into, but, but again, look it up. If you're interested in more of this, Grant Jeffries, 
uh, The Signature of God, fabulous, uh, the name of the book, The Signature of God, the author, Grant Jeffrey, not Jeffries, Grant Jeffrey. But it, they literally, if you add it up, it's 2,520 years because of the multiplication of seven times the years, and it ends May 14th, 1948. Anybody know what happened May 14th, 1948? It was the rebirth of Israel as a nation after World War II. The very same day the Bible prophesies 2,520 years prior to that, that Israel would come back to the land and they would be a nation again 2,520 years later. Now, you've got to do some math on that because we have a 365.25 Gregorian calendar, 365.25 days per year. They have a lunar calendar. There's 12 months of 30 days, 360 days per biblical year. So there's some math involved. There's no year zero. So that's a problem. And if you do it all accurately, it comes out to actually Israel should have been reborn May 15th. That would have been the 0.4 of uh, the 25, uh, 2520.4. I didn't put the 0.4 on there. Uh, to, so it should have been May 15th. So they missed it by a day, but pretty close, right? Except for one thing. The, the, the rabbis blew the shofar at sundown, May 14th. So we Gregorians, we Romans, record days starting in the morning. How many of us know where the Jews start their days? There was, there was morning and there was evening the first day, Genesis chapter 1. So literally, the moment the sun is setting, the rabbis blow the shofar, and a prophecy that is 2,520 2, years old comes to pass within the lifetime of some of the people that are in this room right now. There's nothing else like it. I think the number one reason, though, I'll just skip over this. The number one reason uh, why I, I believe the Bible is true is because it, it does what it says it'll do. Uh, piano guy, join me. My heart was converted to Christ at a rock concert. I wept like a baby. I was converted. I was born again. But that, that dramatic, beautiful, born-again conversion could not be sustained through the trials and tribulations of the military. Trouble and persecution came to me because of the word. Part of the process in the military is if you're a Republican, a Democrat, black, white, purple, whatever, it doesn't matter what you are. We're going to tear it all down and start to build you as a soldier. So my faith was part of what was torn down in that process. Trouble, persecution came because of the word, and my faith was not able to sustain me through that. I went back to my addictions. When my heart came back to the Lord, I was the prodigal son. I wept bitter tears. I'm no longer worthy to be called your child. Maybe just, just give me a job in the barn. And God restored everything that I had forfeited, just like he did the prodigal son. My heart was reengaged, but I'm so grateful that when my heart was reengaged, the people that were with me, we all got in the word. We studied the Word of God. We studied the Old Testament. We studied the New Testament. We played Bible trivia. Uh, we went to Sunday school. We were taught by uh, a, a woman named Winona. You talk about a Texas name, Winona. Her husband had never seen her without her makeup and her wig and her false eyelashes their entire marriage. Been married 50 years. He was the greeter at Colleen First Assembly of God. We called him Storm and Norman the Dorman. He would stand there every day and welcome. He wasn't a believer, but he showed up every Sunday. She taught Sunday school, and he held the door for everybody. I'm just here to tell you, if it had, hear me, if it hadn't been for being anchored, the memorization, the meditation, the study of the Word of God, I would not be married to that beautiful woman. I would not have two kids. I would not have two grandkids. I wouldn't have perfect daughter-in-laws. I wouldn't have you. And honestly, I wouldn't have me. My heart was converted. My feelings were unbelievably euphoric. But there are other times my feelings were not. And I'm so grateful that I had a head filled with Scripture that could stand against those feelings and say, I choose to believe anyway. If you don't trust the Word of God, it cannot transform your life. It's an opinion. It's a fortune cookie. It's a Ouija board. 
It's a message from another world. You choose it or reject it, whether you want to do what it says you should do or not do. And how many of you guys know, and I don't, this is not being critical of the body of Christ. I'm a pastor and a teacher, so this is my fault. But how many of you guys know we have way too many feelings and, as compared to our knowledge of Scripture? We, we want the feeling of worship. We want the feeling of an altar call. We want the feeling of fellowship. We want, and those are all good feelings. And I don't, I don't reject any of them. But they will all come and go as feelings do. What we need is something that isn't doing this. They can take a good beating from wind and waves and rising and all that and, and rain coming down, beating on it. If your life is built on the scriptures, my, my faith, my belief, and my testimony is that you will live a very different consistency in life than those that just wait for the next conference, the next retreat, the, the next camp, the next youth convention. There's nothing wrong with those things, but those things without being solidly built on the truths of the word of God, they'll never get you there. So here's my last question, if I can do it without falling off the stage. When the time comes, who or what are you going to trust? Because if right now you're trusting your feelings, don't go on social media. There's nothing but bad feelings on there. Remember the good old days when it was just, you know, a picture of a cat hanging off a branch that says, hang in there, baby, it's Friday. Remember the good old days when it was redundant stupidity? <laughs> if, if you're going to go according to feelings, don't watch the news. Don't talk to your neighbor. If you're going to go according to your feelings, you should walk out into nature and try to pet a deer or something. Because our feelings are being assaulted by tragic injustice. I, our souls were not created to have a 24-hour pipeline to injustice and tragedy and death and murder and, and it's, we're just not created to do that. But you can do that for a season if you're anchored on the Word of God. People believe the Bible in World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam. People believe the Bible through the Great Depression. People believe the Bible and they stood the test of time, not because their feelings or their prosperity, but because God said it, it's true, and I'm anchored in it. It's anchored in me. So I would just say this as we close tonight. We close today as our, as our conversation is wrapping up. Maybe your question wasn't answered, but here's, I got good news for you. Ask the Bible your question. If the science, if the archaeology, if my testimony, if your experiences are not adequate, if you go, I see it, I get it. Uh, man, you know, wasn't the Bible written a long time ago? Do we really know? Yeah, we really know. Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Great book for you to read. Where did the Bible come from? Who translated it? He just put out a new edition of it. There, uh, Ravi Zacharias, another brilliant scholar who just recently passed away. Uh, who's the other guy? Chicago re news reporter. Stroll, Lee Strobel, another modern person who set out to disprove the Bible because his wife came home nuts from church one day and called herself born again. I'm going to disprove this. This gives his life to Jesus. Is now one of the chief apologists of the Midwest. I'm telling you, if you'll take an honest look at it and ask it the right questions, and I mean ask them, don't be afraid of the answer. Ask them. You'll find out that the greatest dimensions for a sailing vessel ever created were created in Genesis chapter 16. You'll find out that the scientific insight of the ancients is something we're still trying to catch up to today. That it knew about the currents. It knew that the stars without number. And yet when he said that, they counted them. It was 1,120 stars. The Bible says the stars without number. Well, with the naked eye, that's what they could see. But the Bible sees all that's been created because the Creator wrote it without number. So, Father, tonight, I, I just pray. I pray for those that are watching online. I pray for those that are in this room. God, I, I pray, open our hearts to trust and believe your word.
It feels so feeble sometimes to stand up here with a bunch of facts and statistics try to prove something divine. So, Father, I, I pray that as we ask for wisdom, you'll give it to us. We ask for direction, you'll give it to us. And we ask for truth. I need something more than my emotions because sometimes my emotion is anger. My emotion is sadness. My emotion is fear. And it's in those moments that I reach to the bedrock of truth in your word. And it's that word that gets me out of, or gets me through that, or gets me over that. I pray that for everybody. Your word's a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. It's a sword in my hand. It's a foundation for all that I build. As for me and my house, we're going to live what we know of your word. And I pray that over everybody here tonight. In Jesus' name. Listen, if you're here and you're not right with God, one of the things the Bible says clearly is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You don't have to be better than the person next to you or better than the average person. Being good has absolutely nothing to do with heaven and hell. Heaven is not for good people. And hell is not for bad people. Heaven is for forgiven people. Those who trusted him enough to say, would you please take this away? Then he does. If you're here, if you're watching, if you're listening 10 years from now, 50 years from now, and I'm long in the grave, hear me. Jesus will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. I know it. I trust that that word is true. I've lived it, not just once, but day after day after day. Ask him now for mercy and he'll give it to you. Ask him now for a clean slate or for a start. Take that heart. Let him plow it up and plant some seeds in it. Let him take that head and fill it with knowledge. Knowledge of the Holy One. Jesus, we love you. Thanks for teaching us. Let us walk in it. Be wise. In your name we pray. And everybody said, Amen.